Craig DeRoche, the president and CEO of Family Policy Alliance. When you think about abortion, you might imagine a surgical abortion taking place in a clinical setting. That's one type of abortion for sure, but there's another way an abortion can be performed, and tragically, it can be done in a living room, bathroom, a college dorm room, or really anywhere. It's called a chemical abortion, and it's a risky two-drug abortion method where a woman takes pills at home, often by herself, that lead to the death and loss of her child. I'm talking about this heartbreaking issue today with a pro-life medical expert, Dr. Christina Francis. She's a pro-life OBGYN and CEO-elect of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Dr. Francis raises awareness about the risks of chemical abortions and what she's doing to protect life. And also joining us is Eric Baptist, who serves as a senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom and he'll explain a new lawsuit to hold the FDA accountable for failing to protect women with their approval of these dangerous drugs. Stay tuned to hear from them. We are so glad you're enjoying Conversations with Craig. Your experience doesn't have to stop here. To stay connected with other listeners, hear about current events affecting your family, and to share pictures and videos with your friends, follow Family Policy Alliance on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out the links in the show notes, and we'll see you online. I want to jump straight in and then talk about chemical abortion, because I think this is something that not a lot of people are familiar with. So Dr. Francis, I'm gonna direct this one at you. Can you just describe what we mean by chemical abortion, what that process actually looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I'll start by saying that there's a, a recent shift in titles. So um, so I actually am getting ready to take over as CEO at AppLog. And I know we're going to talk about AppLog a little bit more uh, later in this conversation. But yeah, you know, I think it's important that all of us understand exactly what chemical abortion is. Uh, because there's a lot of confusion, I think, out there. A lot of people think maybe it's the same thing as Plan B or the morning after pill. Um, but it actually is a very specific uh, two-drug regimen that was approved in the U.S. by the FDA in the year 2000. And like I said, it involves two medications. The first one is something called mifepristone. And that's a pill that uh, women used to have to take in the, in the presence of the abortion provider. Now, because of changes that we'll discuss by the FDA, they uh, can take that at home. But that first medication works by blocking the action of progesterone, which is a key hormone early in pregnancy that really allows that that early baby to be able to develop as he or she should. So it allows development of good vascular connections so that the nutrients and the oxygen that that preborn child needs can, can get to him or her. So mifepristone works by binding to the receptors for progesterone and blocking progesterone's ability to do what it needs to do. Most times that's the drug that actually leads to the death of that preborn child. That drug is followed up 24 to 48 hours later by a drug called mesoprostol. Now, some people watching this may have heard of mesoprostol or Cytotec. It's used uh, for term labor inductions as well. Uh, it can be used for miscarriage management, but in this case, it's used uh, to induce labor, essentially to make the woman's uterus contract so that she then expels the, the baby, whether that baby already be passed away or whether the baby actually is delivered alive and then 
passes away. And it leads to a lot of pain, very heavy bleeding, and um, some potential complications that I think we'll also talk about. Yeah, and I'd love for you to just get into those because I think when people think about abortion, um, naturally what they're thinking about is going to be surgical abortion. And so they're, they're imagining the images that they've probably seen by now um, of what goes on in the surgical abortion. And of course, that's gruesome and horrific. But what we're talking about here has its own set of risks. So what's, what's involved there for the woman especially? Yeah, absolutely. You know, unfortunately, these uh, dangerous drugs are being sold to women as being sort of an easier alternative than a surgical abortion. I think people think, oh, it's just medication that you would take. It's not a surgery. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. And now these kinds of abortions, according to Guttmacher's own data, account for more than 50% of abortions in this country. And that number is only increasing. That number was from, I believe, 2020. So, you know, we expect that by now it's probably closer to 60, maybe above 60%. And what we see when we look at good studies, studies that do a good job collecting data on the complication rates, what we see is that these drugs carry a four times higher complication rate than do surgical abortions. Uh, and that's, you know, dealing with physical complications. So the most common complications would be hemorrhage or really heavy, severe bleeding that might necessitate a blood transfusion. Uh, it involves incomplete abortions where, where tissue is still in the woman's uterus and she has to have a surgery then to complete her abortion. That can also lead to infection. And we know that there are certain kinds of infections that are actually tied to that first drug, the mifepristone, that, that first pill that the woman takes, that causes an increased risk of a, of a certain type of bacterial infection that actually causes sort of an atypical sepsis picture or an atypical picture of a life-threatening infection that can be harder to diagnose, increase in a woman's risk of dying. And in fact, people might have heard of a young woman, unfortunately, recently in Canada that passed away from this very kind of infection after taking these abortion drugs. So there are significant physical complications that are tied to these drugs. But as you, as you referenced a little bit, there's also sort of these mental and emotional complications that are tied to these drugs. Women oftentimes are not told to expect that they are going to see their baby when they have this kind of abortion. And, you know, I think one of the real tragedies about chemical abortion is that these are not occurring in operating rooms, you know, in abortion facilities. These are occurring in women's homes. They're occurring in women's dorm rooms, their dorm bathrooms, and they are seeing their babies uh, uh, pass from them. And so the reality, I think, of what is going on definitely hits them in that moment. And, you know, doctors that we work with, as well as organizations that we work with, are receiving calls very frequently from women who were not prepared for that, women who were told to just flush their babies down the toilet. But when they see their baby, they see the evidence of the humanity of their child. They just can't do that. And this is causing a lot of emotional trauma for women that are going through these kind of abortions. I think that's so important to talk about the emotional aspect of that, too, because that's I, I think when people think about a pill again um, or, or a series of pills, rather, they think of what happens when they take ibuprofen or something. There's nothing that there that they see. Um, there's there's nothing nothing else that's happening. But they there actually is that component here um, because you are actually expelling your baby. Um, right. And so I, I appreciate you drawing drawing our attention to that. Uh, kind of an aspect of this, you you were talking about how women are are doing this at home. It's in the, it usually just in their toilet. 
Um, and of course, ever since COVID, I think there's this, uh, this has been especially fast tracked uh, to have less and less physician involvement. So not only is the actual abortion taking place at your home, but physicians are less and less involved. So c- can you walk us through a little bit of what's happened over the last couple of years in that regard and how that has affected things like informed consent? Yeah, absolutely. This is a real problem. And it's actually one of the aspects of our our lawsuit against the FDA, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit, is that um, there has been this push by the abortion industry for several years, actually, to remove medical supervision from this process. So we know that these drugs at their baseline, even with medical supervision, are very dangerous to women and girls. Certainly they're dangerous to the preborn children whose lives are ended through this process. But now we have, not we, sorry, the FDA has removed safeguards um, over the use of this drug to allow it to be dispensed without a woman being seen in person. So there are uh, groups like Aid Access that have been trying to do this for years, but you're right, with the COVID pandemic, because women weren't going in to be seen by their physicians, unfortunately, the American College of OBGYNs, who claims to be the premier organization for OBGYNs across the country, actually sued the FDA in 2020 over the restriction that required an in-person visit, saying that it was too onerous, that women needed to be able to attain these drugs from home. And unfortunately, a a federal judge granted uh, their request. And so we saw back in 2020, women starting to be able to obtain these pills through multiple different websites, some of which had a telemedicine visit with a physician, some of which just involved basically filling out a form. Now, the danger in this, and this is not being said by the abortion industry or their allies within the medical profession, but the dangers in this are multiple. First of all, we know that the risks of these drugs increase significantly the farther along in pregnancy a woman is. So it's currently approved by the FDA up through 10 weeks gestation. But how are we supposed to know when a woman is just filling out a form online whether or not she's even correct about how far along she is? In fact, that same group, the American College of OBGYNs, in one of their other documents says that up to 50% of women will be wrong about their gestational age based just on their last menstrual period, and that any pregnancy that is not dated by an ultrasound should be considered suboptimally dated, meaning we don't exactly know how far along she is. And this is really important, like I said, because even at 13 weeks, just three weeks beyond where the FDA has approved this drug, her risk of needing an emergency surgical completion of her abortion goes from one in eight to one in three. So how far along in pregnancy she is makes a huge difference as for what her risk of complications are. The other thing that an in-person visit is required for is we need to make sure before these drugs are given that the pregnancy is in fact inside of her uterus where it should be and not an ectopic pregnancy or pregnancy outside of the uterus. This occurs in one in 50 pregnancies. So this is not a rare condition and it's a life-threatening condition for the woman, especially if it's not diagnosed. And, you know, the real danger with chemical abortions and, and missing an ectopic pregnancy is that their symptoms are essentially identical, vaginal bleeding and abdominal pain. And so if a woman has taken these drugs, she thinks that her bleeding and her pain is just from the abortion. She's been told that that's normal just to expect that and stay at home. She's wasting precious time that could actually mean the difference between life and death for her in not seeking medical care for her ectopic pregnancy. There's multiple other health, uh, health concerns with a woman not being seen in person, including 
the in really lack of ability to screen for coercion or trafficking. We know that many uh, sex trafficking victims have forced abortions and this provision of these drugs online with no in-person visit is a gift to abusers. It's a gift to traffickers that they don't even have to show up to a medical office with their victims to get these drugs. They can order them, you know, in mass if they want to and have a stockpile of them to use for their victims. So this really is just complete negligence of the care of women to be dispensing these without medical supervision. Oh, that's awful. And I, I appreciate you bringing up the, the concerns about women who are being coerced into this. Um, yeah. I think that's it's another another aspect of this that people don't think about, especially again when when they're thinking it's you know just pills. It's it's easy to imagine someone you know dragging a woman into an abortion clinic to get a surgical abortion, but you don't think about that aspect when someone's just ordering pills online. Um, and of course, it's now getting even easier uh, to get those pills because of something the FDA recently did. Do you want to bring our audience up to speed on that? Sure. So, uh, so you know, as I said, it kind of started when ACOG sued the FDA uh, in 2020 to get that that in-person requirement removed. And then at, at the end of 2021, December, uh, the FDA made the lifting of those safeguards permanent. So they said that women did not have to be seen in person uh, before receiving these drugs, that they could receive them through the mail, they could order them online, maybe through a telemedicine visit. But again, that's not even happening all of the time. Um, and uh, they continue to not collect uh, or require the, the reporting of complications. The only complication that they require the reporting of is, is a maternal death from these drugs. And so we have, or the FDA has lifted most of these safeguards. The only thing that remains is that in order to dispense these medications, supposedly you have to be a certified prescriber through the manufacturer. But again, there are dozens and dozens of websites where women can obtain these drugs, either from pharmacies here in the U.S. or sometimes they come from overseas. And, you know, so again, the FDA has just neglected its duty. And, and I know Eric can talk later to what exactly the FDA has been tasked with doing by Congress. Um, but essentially their duty is to protect the American public from dangerous drugs. And they have completely abandoned that duty when it comes to this drug. And we know that women and girls across this country are being harmed day in and day out by these dangerous drugs. And that's why uh, we are involved in this lawsuit. Yeah. So Eric, I'm going to turn it over to, to you now to just talk to us about what is this lawsuit? Um, why are you all involved and what, what does that look like? As Dr. Francis mentioned, the FDA has a legal obligation to protect the American public from all dangerous drugs but have failed America's women and girls by approving dangerous chemical abortion drugs, and then repeatedly failed them by taking away basic protections for those who take these chemical abortion drugs. Therefore, we are suing the FDA for all its actions, both to approve chemical abortion drugs and then take away those protections. Um, the FDA, in order to approve chemical abortion drugs, the agency needed to define and call pregnancy an illness. It also needed to explain that chemical abortion drugs provide a meaningful therapeutic benefit to women and girls who take those drugs. Both are patently false statements. And that is one of the many legal infirmities associated with the FDA's actions on chemical abortion drugs. The second is that the FDA is legally required by Congress to have substantial evidence, adequate testing, and sufficient information demonstrating and showing the safety of these drugs 
as directed under the label. Over the course of two decades, the FDA has not a single study that has ever evaluated the safety of these drugs as directed on the label. Every study contains precautions and protections for women that's not afforded to the women in the real world, such as an ultrasound to determine gestational age, identify the ectopic pregnancies, as Dr. Francis noted, and then at the end of a chemical abortion to determine whether she has any fetal parts remaining or other pregnancy tissue that could lead to life-threatening complications. None of that's required in the regimen, but those are the studies that purportedly demonstrate the, the safety of these drugs according to the FDA. And finally, the FDA has had a legal obligation since it approved these drugs to study the safety and effectiveness of these drugs on pediatric populations. So here they were supposed to require studies that reviewed and analyzed whether these drugs have any sub, some type of impact on girls, teenage girls who are going through reproductive development and whether it has any long-term or short-term impact on them. We simply do not know because the FDA has not conducted and required those legally obligated studies. And so we are taking the FDA to court because the FDA has refused over the last two decades to do anything about it, to follow the law and to follow the science. Wow. I mean, just the, just the list of things that you gave there that the FDA has failed on just time after time after time. Um, I think that's it's really concerning and commend you guys for, for leading this lawsuit. Um, where, where are you all at in the process? Just to give some perspective for our audience. Yeah, when we filed our lawsuit in November, we asked, we also filed a motion asking for expedited review of our claims. And so we're almost fully briefed on this. We're going to file our last brief this Friday. And then, as the, the court said, this will complete the briefing and there may be a hearing and then a, a decision shortly thereafter. So we're, we're not sure of the schedule yet, but we're almost to the end of the briefing schedule when we're looking forward to expedited consideration of our claims. That's great and, and so important. Every every minute uh, saves could be could be the difference between life and death. Um, so thank you, thank you all for doing that, Dr. Francis. I want to talk to you a little bit about the work that you're doing too. So in in addition to you know Alliance Defending Freedom, you all have this uh, really wonderful lawsuit that you're leading, uh, Dr. Francis. You are the upcoming CEO of the American Associations of of PDI, or of Pro Life. Uh, OBGYNs, I can say this. Uh, <laughs> uh, so can you just talk a little bit about what AppLog does? And uh, yeah, just tell us about your organization. Yeah, absolutely. And no worries. Our full name is a mouthful. That's why we go by AppLog. So it's much easier. So um, we are a professional medical organization consisting of over 7,000 medical professionals, mostly OBGYNs, but we also include many other uh, women's healthcare professionals. So midwives and nurses, family medicine physicians, uh, mental health professionals who desire to practice medicine from a life affirming standpoint. We're actually the largest professional medical organization for pro-life medical professionals in the world. And we are celebrating our 50th anniversary this year, which is really exciting. We were actually formed as a special interest group within ACOG, the American College of OBGYNs, in 1973 in response to the Roe decision because the leadership of ACOG at the time had submitted a pro-abortion amicus brief in the Roe case, uh, which really was incongruent with the how most of their members felt. And so there were several pro-life members within ACOG who, who recognized sort of the pro-abortion direction that the leadership was going, and they formed a pro-life special interest group, which was APLOG, 
within ACOG. And we quickly became the largest special interest group within ACOG and remained that way until 2013 when ACOG dissolved all special interest groups. And then that's when we became our own separate organization. And since 2013, we have more than tripled our membership. And I think even now we're seeing really exponential growth. And, you know, I think the reason for that is, is men, there are many reasons for that. One is in response, I think, to what we see happening in the medical profession, which is, you know, more of the the sort of quote unquote mainstream medical organizations becoming pro-abortion and ignoring the medical evidence that exists that shows that abortion is harmful for both of our patients. You know, as OBGYNs, we care for two patients at once. Certainly abortion ends the life of my fetal patient, but also significantly harms my maternal patient. And it's not good health care for my patients. And I think a lot of physicians are saying enough is enough. We need to be offering our patients excellent health care and fully informed consent. But also, I just want to make people aware of the pressures that pro-life medical professionals are under right now, especially those in training, but also those in practice. So after the Dobbs decision came out in June, the American Board of OBGYNs, who gives us our board certification, which is what allows me to be able to practice in the hospital that I practice in, they came out with a statement saying that if any board-certified OBGYNs were caught spreading mis- or disinformation about abortion, that we could have our board certification revoked. So our livelihood is under threat right now because we desire to speak the truth according to the medical evidence about the effects that abortion has on our patients. So one thing I would say to anybody who's watching this podcast is, If you see a physician who's pro-life, please encourage them. They probably feel very isolated and alone and under pressure. Um, And so please just encourage them that you appreciate the fact that they are delivering life-affirming, evidence-based healthcare to their patients. Well, I have a follow-up question to that, which is just a a practical one. Um, I'm thinking about this as a woman. I'm at an age where a lot of my friends are having kids right now and they're they're seeking out their OBGYNs. Um, how important is it for a woman, A, to have a pro-life OBGYN, but B, if she doesn't have that access or doesn't know if her OB is pro-life, are there certain questions that she can ask um, or any advice there? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'll start with the first part. I think it's definitely very important uh, to see a pro-life physician. And the reason for that is because you want to know that the physician that you're seeing, if you're facing a a pregnancy complication or your child is facing an adverse diagnosis, you want to know that you're seeing a physician who is going to fight for both of you and and provide you with the most excellent healthcare that we possibly can. Now, there are certainly situations in which we can't save that child because of, you know, maybe a prenatal diagnosis or maybe mom develops a a complication of her pregnancy prior to the point where that child can survive outside of her. But even in those situations, we can still treat both patients, both our our pregnant woman and that, that fetal patient, we can treat both of them with dignity and respect. And you want to know that your physician is going to do that. And, you know, I think a lot of physicians, even those who wouldn't claim to be pro-life, are approaching medicine from that standpoint. And so they know inherently that that's that's what we entered this profession to do. And, And in fact, I think that's why 
the vast majority of OBGYNs, we know that more than 90% of OBGYNs do not perform abortions. So for the vast majority of women who are seeking out an OBGYN, their OBGYN is probably not going to perform abortions. Um, but I think it's perfectly reasonable, especially if it's something that's important to you that you see a pro-life physician, that you ask a new physician, you know, do you perform or recommend abortions, especially on an elective basis, because that might give you some, some crucial information and hopefully open up good uh, lines of communication to be able to have a good conversation with your physician. If someone is looking for a pro-life physician, they can go actually to our website, which is aaplog.org. And we do have a public directory there. You can search by your state and look for pro-life physicians that are APLOG members in your area. I will say that there are certain areas of the country where it'll look like we don't have any members there. Um, mostly that's because our physicians in that area of the country, again, are under immense pressure that if they list themselves publicly, they might face, um, you know, blowback in their in their workplace. And so don't be discouraged. You can always reach out to us if you can't find a pro-life physician in your area. We'll try and get you connected if we can. But it definitely is something It's one of the most visited areas of our website. And it's one of the most common calls that we get at AppLog are women looking for a pro-life physician. So we know that there are a lot of women out there that are looking uh, to see a doctor who's going to affirm the life, their life and the life of their child. That's outstanding. And I, I love that you all have that. I'll definitely be sending friends that way. Um, my last question for you is, is also a, a more practical one. Um, and it's, it's two parts. So there's a lot of people in our audience. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure there are people in our audience who have had abortions um, and who are listening to this with, with regret um, and, and wondering what they could have done differently. There's probably another group in our audience who may be male or female, and they have friends in their lives or family members who are considering abortions or considering their considering whether they would ever have an abortion. What would be your encouragement to each of those two groups of people? So the women who, who've had abortions and the people who are counseling friends? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I always assume when I'm when I'm speaking to any group of any kind of size that that there's someone there who has abortion in their past or who's been impacted by abortion, because we know that it is actually very common. And the first thing that I would say is that none of this was meant to condemn you. In fact, I think it's very probable that you found yourself in a very difficult circumstance that you just couldn't see another way out of. And most likely, knowing what I know, you probably didn't receive the amount of counseling that you needed. So what I would say is that there is hope and there is healing for you. I would encourage you to seek out um, one of many post-abortion counseling ministries. Um, I'm sure that Family Policy Alliance could get you connected you could come to our website, we could get you connected. You need to talk with other women who understand what you're going through. And for men who have participated in an abortion decision in the past, I think they're often overlooked. And I know that a lot of men really struggle with regret, with depression, with anxiety over uh, that past uh, involvement in an abortion. And so there are actually post-abortion ministries for men as well that can help you through that healing process. You know, this is something that, that you can forgive give yourself for. And I am so, so sorry that you had to go through what you went through simply because probably you just didn't have the support and the resources that you needed. What I would say to people who have, um, you know, loved ones or friends in their lives that might be considering abortion is please, please don't be afraid to talk to them. Help them find out 
you know, what abortion really is, what sort of complications might occur, what it might mean for their future. You know, when I was, now I work as a hospitalist, so I just see patients in the hospital, but when I was still seeing patients in the office and I would have a woman come in and see me and she would tell me that she was thinking about abortion, the very first thing that I would say to her is, can you tell me why you think that this is the right option for you? Or can you tell me why you feel like this is the only option for you? That's a very revealing question. And it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, reveal where I stand on abortion, which I think is important when you're opening up that conversation, but it's very revealing because most times what they would say to me is that they simply didn't have the support that they needed or the resources that they needed to be able to take care of that child. Or maybe somebody was pressuring them into that decision, you know, a boyfriend, a, a spouse, a, a parent, a grandparent. And so it really then I think opens up lines of communication to be able to say, you know, if it's coercion, that's not okay. Uh, it's never okay for somebody to pressure you into a decision like that. Or if it's a lack of resources, why would we want someone to make a decision that one, we know is going to be a major decision in their life. Two, we know has a very high risk of having either physical or mental complications down the road. At the very least, most women are going to live with some amount of regret for the rest of their life. Why would we want them to make a decision like that simply because they didn't feel supported? You know, an abortion doesn't change the circumstances that they find themselves in. It just puts a Band-Aid on it for a little while. And that's actually why the studies that look at how women feel after they've had an abortion show that initially many of them feel a sense of relief because that moment of crisis has passed. But if you follow them out for several years, what you find is that relief oftentimes goes away and then they start regretting their decision. And so, you know, what we really want to do is as those of us who want to support women, want to support their children, want to empower women and help bring them out of those circumstances that they find themselves in. What we want to do is offer them hope, offer them support and love and let them know that abortion is not the only option for them. And in fact, really is not going to benefit them in any way. But in order to do that, we need to stand alongside of them, not just while they you know, change their minds about their abortion decision, but through their pregnancies and far beyond as well. Thank you for saying all of that. I think that's a it's a good word. And I, I get the blessing of being here at an openly Christian organization where, um, as, as you were talking, I, I kept thinking for, for anyone in the audience um, who's gone through an abortion or maybe this is triggering something else that, that you're, that's been on your mind, the gospel is for you um, and, and Christ, Christ is for you. Um, and here at Family Policy Alliance, we, we firmly believe that. So I, I hope you are encouraged, um, encouraged with that. Dr. Francis, Eric, thank you so much for joining us and for shedding light on a really important and I think under-discussed topic in the pro-life arena. Um, we are so grateful for the work that both of you all are doing and I hope to our audience that you get involved with both of these outstanding groups, Alliance Defending Freedom, Applog, I'm not gonna try to say the full name again, uh, but we'll have the, have the links in the comments or in the show notes if you're listening to the podcast version of this. Thank you so much for joining me today to speak out to your pharmacy, hear more interviews like this, or stay in touch with Family Policy Alliance. Check out the links in the description. Once again, I'm Craig DeRoche, the president and CEO of Family Policy Alliance, and we'll talk to you again real soon. 
Conversations with Craig is brought to you by Family Policy Alliance. Our vision is a nation where God is honored, religious freedom flourishes, families thrive, and life is cherished.